Welcome to episode one of the BC Museum Association's IBPOC Network podcast. My name is Jasmine, and I'm the BCMA's Communications and Special Projects Coordinator, as well as the coordinator of this network. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Sharnjeet Sandra, or Sharn, as anyone who knows her calls her. Sharn is the former curator at the Sikh Heritage Museum at Gursik Temple Gurdwara in Abbotsford, BC, and we recorded this episode while sitting inside the museum space there. Sharn currently works as a historian for Parks Canada and recently opened up her own consulting business, Belonging Matters. During this episode, we chat about representation of South Asian communities in museums, the struggles of being a professional of colour working in the sector, and advice for emerging BIPOC professionals in the field. A few terms that are used that listeners may not recognize or be familiar with. Sharn often refers to SASI, which is the South Asian Studies Institute at University of Fraser Valley, based in Abbotsford. This institute does amazing work and is run by Dr. Sutwinder Baines, another inspiring woman of color working to improve representation of racialized communities in heritage. A link to their website can be found on the podcast page. Sharn also uses the term Gurdwara or Gurdware, which refers to Sikh temples, and Seva, which is a Sikh concept of selfless service. Links to many of the projects and resources that Sharn references in this episode can be found on the podcast page, as well as a few photos I took that day of the Gursik Temple site. Okay, on to the podcast. So, welcome today, Sharn. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> How did you first get uh, involved in, in this space? Yeah, so I was very lucky. My involvement came through my work at the South Asian Studies Institute, so I had been working there for about 12 years and in 2011 we officially created the Sikh Heritage Museum through the leadership of Dr. Stunder Baines. It did take a few years before 2011 to get that process going and the reason why we chose 2011 was because it was the centennial celebrations of this Gurdwara space. So in 2011 this Gurdwara was celebrating 100 years since it had officially opened in 1911. So since 2011 my work as coordinator at the South Asian Studies Institute meant that I naturally got to be involved in this space and through that process build relationships in the museum world, the museum sector, and curate exhibits, co-curate exhibits here and do programming. So it's been going on during my time of working mm-hmm. at the SASE. And you recently <laughs> left SASE. Right? I did. Uh, so when I finished my PhD, of course, I realized that it's time for me to move on and give somebody else space to potentially work at the SASE. And so I was very lucky to find a job as a historian with Parks Canada, which is really aligned with my expertise and background in history, specifically in the discipline of history. So I've been there since the first week of October and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. Oh, before we move on to your current mm-hmm. position, I do have some questions about uh, sure. the Temple and the, the exhibit <clears throat> spaces here. Sure. So in 2011, a 10-year partnership began between SASE, or the South Asian Studies Institute at UFE, the Reach Gallery Museum, and the Abbotsford Khalsa Dhawan Society mm-hmm. to run the museum here together. Mm-hmm. Is this partnership still going on? Is this how the museum is run, or how does it work here now? Yeah, so our partnership 
ended 2021 it would have been because that would have been the 10 years between like you mentioned the sassy the reach gallery museum and the cause of the one society abbotsford is kind of like the management committee that oversees the management and running of this gurdwara space so when that first contract ended the sassy continued by itself with the cause of the one society abbotsford so now we it's a two-way partnership only And a part of that is our kind of reclaiming of our own space, a reclaiming of our own storytelling. And also we've been so privileged to learn so much in those 10 years and build so many relationships, meaningful relationships that we felt it's time for us to just kind of do this two-way partnership. And so that's where we're at right now. So the partnership, the renewed contract for another 10 years is between the SASE and the cause of the One Society Abbotsford. We've got a couple exhibits up right now. Mm -hmm. Did you work on these exhibits here? Yeah, so this is the last exhibit actually that Mm -hmm. I did before moving on to my new job and it's called An Ocean of Peace and it was a traveling exhibit that was originally done at the New Westminster Museum and Archives at the Anvil Center. So Rob McCullough, I believe, was the, is the curator there. And um, that exhibit looks at the history of the Suksagar Gurdwara, which is the 100-plus-year-old Gurdwara and Sikh community mm-hmm. in New Westminster. And so that exhibit was originally curated by Naveen Gurn and Paneet Singh. So this exhibit that we have here is that basic content, the timeline, the panels, the stories of New Westminster's Sikh community. The reason why we wanted to do this is because Gurdwaras across British Columbia historically are very interconnected and they have been historically. And so when we look at these community histories, our community's histories across British Columbia, it isn't just Abbotsford in isolation, New Westminster in isolation, Baldi in isolation. All these Gurdwaras, you know, 100 years ago were intimately connected to each other. So for example, like they all kind of had a pre-designated commemoration or Sikh celebration, Sikh religious celebration, that the entire community would go to one Gurdwara space. So for example, you know, I think our Gurdwara historically was where we commemorated the birth of our first teacher, the founder of Sikhi Guru Nanak. So that meant 100 you know, or so years ago, everybody from BC would travel together and come here. They would congregate, they would make their langar, and ditto for like Victoria Topaz Street Gurdwara, mm-hmm. or Baldi is where the Jor Mela happened every year. It's really important that we continue to honor those traditions of Gurdwara spaces before, you know, our community has, the South Asian community has grown so much and now there are mandars for Hindus mm-hmm. and there are masjids for Muslims and other South Asian sacred spaces. Before that, it was just Gurdwaras, right? So this exhibit is not just about New Westminster Sikh histories, it's that interconnectedness of our community's history here. Right. So you're talking about the fact that people from different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, Mm -hmm. um, cultural backgrounds, would all come to Gurdwaras or Sikh temples to congregate because that's the only space that they had at that time. Definitely, until like the populations increase. And of course, Mm -hmm. when populations increase, you have more capacity as a community to create your own safe space, which you absolutely should. But also, you know, I think it's really important that you know, our solidarities with each other were harbored in these spaces, right? Like when we were fighting for the right to vote collectively, when Mm -hmm. we were fighting um, to fundraise for the shore committee for the passengers of the Kamagata Maru, it was a collective space when we were fighting, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, for union rights. These things took place collectively as like a pan-South Asian movement. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's really beautiful and really important, especially in this time of lots of division and, you know, we we try to silo ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we honor those histories. Mm -hmm. And now it's great that the South Asian, you know, faith groups have expanded so much that they have their own sacred spaces. Mm -hmm. And yet they still do come to the Gurdwaras too or vice versa. So I think that's important. We honor that. Yeah. (laughs)
No, it's important to remember that we built our communities together and we needed yes. that support. And exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And, you know, remember the names, like as a historian, right? Like I'm driven by people's names or the erasure of names and mm-hmm. what that means to reclaim, but also reclaim their stories as part of like a Canadian narrative or British Columbian narrative, as opposed to it just being, you know, this is sick history, this is so-and-so history. Like, no, we are weaved throughout these yeah. national narratives whether people like it or not. So we need to memorize these names and learn these names. That's kind of what I get to do at Parks Canada, which is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a question about the exhibit panels here. Yeah. So a lot of the panels have interpretation in English, yeah. and then they also have interpretation in Gurmukhi, which yeah. is the script for the Punjabi language. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and like why that's important for visitors and community members? Yeah, so important. So when we founded this museum in 2011, that was kind of the crux of our... Um, jumping forward. Every exhibit we've done since 2011, and I think this is our 13th exhibit, has always been in English and Punjabi. The reason why is we want elders in our community to come. Like, you know, I think people assume people in our own communities just know these histories. They do not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's because we haven't always had the time to lift our heads up from settlement Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, building lives and getting our children educated and, and just just putting our heads down and working. We haven't really had a chance to look up and look at our own histories in these indigenous lands that we are on, mm-hmm. right? So every exhibit is dual language to be able to make knowledge accessible mm-hmm. in our mother tongue. But also I want young people to kind of normalize the Gurmukhi language and Punjabi language too. Mm-hmm. It's very important to me. My boys go to Gurmukh Center Punjabi school. So their mother tongue is everything to me. Mm-hmm. So I want even kids who may not be able to read Punjabi or may be curious about Punjabi, see that and normalize it and say museum spaces can indeed have Gurmukhi or other second languages. So every exhibit we do is always dual language. And it's been a great uh, learning for me (laughs) over the past 10 years where I had kind of a basic Mm -hmm. understanding of reading and writing Punjabi. So getting to do that for 10 years Mm -hmm. has just strengthened my mother tongue as well. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, like for visitors in my grandparents' generation, mm-hmm. you know, not all of them had the opportunity to learn how to, to read or write Gurmukhi. Yeah. Are there ever like tours or, you know, like any mm-hmm. kind of audio version given mm-hmm. of these exhibits to help them also access the content? Yeah. So we do tours through the South Asian Studies Institute. Mm-hmm. I also can be reached to do tours just off of um, SEVA, so voluntary service that I do when I have time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love giving tours. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think you probably see like my tweets. Well, you're so passionate. I, like, I can imagine they're amazing. <laughs> I tell you, I just love giving tours to, especially like middle school, high school kids, high school kids from my own community, high school kids not from my community, mm-hmm. um, educators doing a professional development ter- tour. And the reason why is because I see this heritage building as a resource and a community builder Mm -hmm. but i also see it as something that is inherently Mm anti-racist right and we need to foster that language in our everyday life Mm -hmm. right anti-racism anti-racism what is interracial solidarity what if we just remove the idea of racism and whiteness and just talk about each other relationships with each other all those things i get to do here Mm -hmm. so i i happily give tours if people are interested but Certainly the South Asian Studies Institute and Satundar can be reached as well if you want to have a tour through the Institute. I want to share one thing. Mm. Uh, Also before I left, I got to create a 3D walkable tour of this Gurdwara space. Oh, neat. Brand new. Um, We got a grant and 
it is so cool it's like one of those um clickable you walk in it's like a real estate tour you know when you can do okay. real estate yeah. tours at home definitely the virtual reality yes thing. okay yeah so we just did that a few months ago and it's live so if you're you know an educator in the uk and you want to learn about oh, this gurdwara space you yeah. can physically walk through mm -hmm. this exhibit currently is on display our hope is every time there's a new exhibit we'll get a photographer to change it up mm -hmm. so new images which will mean new images on our virtual displays you can right. always see the most up-to-date exhibit I'm really proud of it. It's so exceptionally done. The image is sharp, the movement is sharp, and you can even click on panels mm -hmm. and read the panels. So again, it's about accessibility worldwide. So I can certainly provide you that link to give to your listeners. Awesome. Thank mm -hmm. you, Sean. Yeah, no worries. Um, oh, I just thought of another question. I think I <laughs> lost it. We get so excited. I know. It's just so <laughs> great being here, too, and like seeing the... We're sitting in an exhibit right now. Yeah, we're chatting. exactly. It's yeah. Oh, my question for you. So when you're creating some of this interpretation here, mm -hmm. was there anything that really struck a chord with you with mm -hmm. either your own family's history mm -hmm. or your own experience researching South Asian history in Canada? Uh, it's been very emotional for me. Haha. <laughs> People always joke that sh Sharn emotional shocker. I'm a very emotional human being. But history is emotional. Right? History that means so you're connecting with Totally. It. And you know, my faith is something that drives my emotion as well. Mm -hmm. Sikhi as a faith of social justice, as a faith of feminism, as a faith of equity, all, solidarity, all these things helped drive who I've become to this point, mm -hmm. right? And it's taken 10 years of me doing exhibits in this space, getting to meet so many amazing people, community members, giving tours to amazing community members. That has fostered so much more sense of belonging than anything outside of this space. And I write about that in my dissertation as well. Like I kind of begin one of my introductory chapters or maybe conclusion to say, it's my belonging in this Gurdwara that saved me from quitting the PhD program, right? I did contemplate quitting because it was really difficult, but I found this like pocket of energy and this pocket of goodwill and um, Sikhi, like my faith mm -hmm. through this space. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if I'm answering your question, but it's really been just a journey and discovery of myself, this Gurdwara space. So just an eminent amount of gratitude, mm -hmm. really, to this Gurdwara space, learning about my community. My boys have been to almost every exhibit launch we've ever done. So seeing them grow up, right, yeah. through the Gurdwara museums has also been emotional for me, right? Mm -hmm. Because I didn't have that privilege of mm -hmm. getting to see myself res reflected that much in a museum space. And so I hope they'll take that with them and it'll form such a core strength in themselves that when they face the outer world it'll just push them forward so just i just can't say enough good things <laughs> about what i've gotten from being in here oh, yeah it's amazing yeah. Here. and i think you know that's what people hope you'll find in in Gurdwaras and in other cultural spaces too yes, right absolutely. we're all just looking to like find ourselves in our history yeah yeah and really understand our roots better absolutely and you know so for those who don't know sikhi means to to learn mm -hmm. like the word sikh means to gain knowledge to question, to learn. So again, I find it such a natural fit that this space that we are sitting in, which used to be a place of giving food, nourishment, langar, through the concept of langar, which is a free vegetarian meal, and Gurdwaras is now serving knowledge, wow. right? Yeah. yeah. And so again, it harkens back to the foundational idea of our faith, which is to learn mm -hmm. and question. I encourage people to say, you disagree with me, question me but question with humility and question with respect we can have a dialogue mm -hmm. you know um so it's natural that this place is a museum it's mm -hmm. perfectly fitting
Did you get any pushback like mm-hmm. setting up these exhibits or when you first setting up the museum here? It's funny, so Linda and I always talk about an exhibit we did on sick feminisms. Okay. And this was in 2017, and you can also see the interpretive panels online. We created an e-exhibit mm-hmm. from that. And what we did was take passages from our Gurbani, so our scriptures, a specific passage and provide English translation that was the male gaze, but then a feminist gaze from Dr. Nikki Gunindra okay. Singh, mm-hmm. who's an eminent scholar. We were really worried. We're like, this is the first time we're doing something. What would happen? Mm-hmm. Literally nothing happened. Oh, we got so much <laughs> praise, um, so much engagement, so much interest. So that is the only exhibit I was like, okay, we're delving into, you know, challenging, mm-hmm. challenging patriarchy, which exists everywhere, not mm-hmm. just in Punjabi cultures. How would this reception be? And it was great. Mm-hmm. That's the only exhibit. Every other exhibit we've done has been built off of such um, good community relationships that we've never had any issues knock on wood it's all been good <laughs> yeah um, tell me about the community relationships like yeah. who are you working with well it's sassy now but uh when i was there with the sassy we um like i said new westminster uh, vancouver maritime museum we brought their exhibit on the Kamagata Maru, which they had done, I think, in 2014 to commemorate the centennial. Beautiful exhibit. Um, We had it here temporarily for a year, but we created a permanent outdoor installation, which I think you were looking at earlier. It's a permanent installation. And Mm -hmm. again, Kamagata Maru is, of course, one of those benchmark moments of our community head-on challenging racist legislation. It's Mm -hmm. important. But I always remind people it's not the only story. So when you come into this space, you get a nuance of stories, Mm -hmm. right? Which is our whole goal. Um, So that's one partnership. Our biggest partnership has been with the Royal BC Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh gosh, I think it's been close to nine years now. It's been many, many years. Uh, Beginning with the Punjabi Canadian Legacy Project we'd worked Mm -hmm. on with them. And there was a phase one and two where we went across seven different regions in British Columbia and gathered stories of Punjabi communities in Mm -hmm. those spaces, hubs essentially, where there is a history through sawmills uh, in particular. So that has grown and developed into many different things. But then uh, last year, we launched our South Asian Canadian Legacy Project Mm -hmm. in which uh, the RBCM is creating a like a kit, just like they did for the Bamboo Shoots Project, beautiful um, educational toolkit that can go to schools across British Columbia. So they're helping us create that. And so that partnership will keep going. That's one of our biggest partnerships. So other than that, you know, Cowichan Valley Museum and Archives, we've got great relationships because the Cowichan Valley and Baldi and Island is critical to our Mm -hmm. community's history. It's foundational, really, just because of the uniqueness of what Baldi was. So that's one great relationship we fostered. Um, Yeah, gosh, I could name so many. Again, it's the privilege of, you know, once you enter this glam sector in BC, or specifically museum and heritage sector, you get into this web of relationships where y'all get to know each other, y'all know each other's names, and it just becomes this meaningful relationship. Mm -hmm. And, And meaningful to me means that it's based on reciprocity, it's based on power divisions that are eradicated, right? Like it's an equal footing. Um, and it's also based, Jasmine, on complicating things, right? right? Like I truly, truly believe when you do community work, never expect ease. If you want easy answers, easy access, easy timelines, yeah, that's not going to happen. Especially with communities that are um, so mar- not marginalized, but have been erased and are demanding, mm-hmm. you got to be ready for it. Yeah. And so we come with that sort of um, fostering mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it's relationships are foundational 100 percent 
I completely agree. I think especially when there's a history of distrust there too. Yes. It takes so many years to build yeah. That, yeah. that trust and that respect that yeah. goes into, you know, a collaborative, respectful relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, while I have you here, like, let's talk a little bit about Faldi. Yes. <laughs> uh, I believe you visited Faldi. I did. Project. Okay. Yeah. So for those listening at home, um, Faldi was a mill town mm-hmm. owned by was he a Sikh owner? Yes, Mail yeah, Singh. Mail Singh. Yeah. Um, and it's it's an important part of South Asian history in BC because yeah. I believe that mill was the only one of its kind at that time. Yeah, I would say it's a, a unique part of like Canadian history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm really trying to get awareness and Sassy has been for a while, mm-hmm. but also really pushing, you know, those who are still in Baldi to mm-hmm. designate it as a national historic site right. and really, really amplify its presence. So the reason why it's unique is I mentioned the word like interracial solidarity. This to me is very, very important when doing this work because again, Oftentimes, colonialism gets relegated into whites versus everybody else. Our relationships are always predicated on exclusion based on whiteness. What interracial solidarity does is drive us just to look at each other and talk to each other. And what were those relationships? Because they existed. Not everything was predicated on, you know, whiteness excluding us. Aldi was this mill town where Japanese workers were there, Chinese workers were there, white workers were there, indigenous workers were there, and of course sick workers were there, sick families, I should Mm -hmm. say workers' families. This community is so unique in the relationships they have fostered. So I got to go there twice as part of this legacy Mm -hmm. project work. And I went there last summer with the PCHC, so the Pacific Canada Heritage Centre Museum of Migration. I got to do a tour there. Yeah, I got to do a (laughs) tour there as well through them. And every time I go there, the nostalgia, and I say this positively, oftentimes Mm -hmm. we talk about nostalgia as a negative. I remember one time I was there and a former white resident of Baldi said, I remember when there was this post office and I would go to that post office as a kid and it would be a post office slash a general store (laughs) slash this slash that. And everybody started laughing. And why it's so beautiful is that they fostered like the sense of community outside of the racism. And not to say that there wasn't racism, like a, a friend of mine, Anita Lal, has told me about casteism that oh, existed in Baldi, okay. right? Yeah. But I, I have to read her story again carefully, but I think it was Mayo Singh who kind of subverted that and said no. Right. So in our own community, we've got casteism, right? Mm-hmm. And he stopped it. He nipped it at the bud, if I remember the story correctly. So not to say that it was all perfect, but when I hear the stories of former residents, naming each other like michael abe was there when i went um in the summer and he mapped out his whole family history and joan mayo came in and said i knew your aunts and somebody else came and said i knew your aunts and it's just this beautiful community that has been fostered and not known enough right baldi that's what makes baldi unique to the canadian narrative right not just the sick and yeah it was a sick canadian founder for sure but it's a microcosm of like shared living uh, in a mill town i don't think existed at that level like they had their own male currency you know joan would open up her pool to everybody and all the kids would be playing in the pool like the stories are beautiful like really beautiful and I wish there was more of a national awareness around it. That's a long-winded answer, but Baldi is amazing. No, I agree. Yeah. Baldi is amazing and I think the stories are really meaningful. Yes. If you know people want to learn more about Baldi, where would you recommend that they go? Um, there's a few places. So certainly check out like the South Asian Canadian Legacy Project and we have our website called threadingourstories.ca. Mm-hmm. In that site there is a book that the Sassy published 
called A Social History of South Asians in British Columbia, and there are chapters that look at Balbi and the story of Mayo Singh. But in terms of archives, the SASI again has created a whole digital archive. So we've got sacda.ca, which is S-A-C-D-A, and we've got a whole archive catalog just of Balbi. Like Joan's entire collection has been digitized, made accessible, open access. Mm -hmm. So people really can read every letter, every see every picture and really get an understanding of the depth of that community. So that's a couple of resources for sure. And I would encourage, you know, if there's university faculty or even high school faculty, use that as like learning in your, say, analyze this archive. What does it teach you about, you know, BC history? So those are a couple of resources for sure. That's awesome. I'll include a link to SACTA on our podcast page. Yeah. Um, I worked on SACTA in the very beginning. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's such an amazing project that yeah. the University of Fraser Valley's Asian Studies Institute is working on. And yeah. they're really, they're working so hard to collect, you know, family histories yeah. and photographs and help people identify their shared stories yeah. as well. Yeah. And so I know it's meant to be like a community hub in mm-hmm. a way. And and, and we need to expand as well because it's called South Asian Canadian mm-hmm. Digital Archives. So the reason why it's so heavy right now in Punjabi Sikh history is because that's the oldest history in this community, which also needs to be preserved with a sense of urgency because those documents go far back as like 1890s, early 1900s. Um, but our hope is that we expand much wider mm-hmm. to include uh, and build relationships with South Asian Canadian communities across BC mm-hmm. and Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and I know like the project is looked at making sure lots of languages are accessible to yes. like Urdu and Sanskrit. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And that it's not just that, you know, Punjabi focused. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a huge venture and undertaking. Something that we should all be proud of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna pivot to your PhD sure. a little bit. <laughs> Got the title here. So you recently published your PhD dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, Museums as spaces of belonging, racialized power in the margin, which everyone can read for free yes. online and I'll include a link to it as awesome. well. Awesome. So in it, you looked at this museum, the Gursik Temple, the Nikkei National Museum, and Burnaby Village Museum mm-hmm. in order to understand how museums can become meaningful spaces of belonging for racialized visitors. Can you tell me a little bit about that research and yeah. you know what it involved, what you learned through the process? Yeah. Which is, um, you know, asking you to condense your whole PhD <laughs> into like a tiny little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the elevator pitch, which we all learn as right. like graduate students to learn how to do. So the elevator pitch. Um, So my dissertation compares racialized museum visitors' experiences only. And I want to caveat that by saying you'd be shocked how little this has been done in like the field of museum studies, um, in the field of cultural studies. Like I I do a bit of a lit review in my dissertation as well. And I was shocked. And one of my committee members suggested I look at like one journal that is supposed to be dedicated to... um, just museum visitor studies. I looked at, I think, more than a decade worth of museum studies, and only a handful of them focused specifically on racialized communities, right? So what that tells me is that there's a fairly big gap on what we have to say about museums, right? Mm -hmm. So from that pretense, it was a jumping off point. Originally, I thought I would focus only on like Sikhi and the Sikh Heritage Museum and that community's history. And my supervisor, Dr. Henry Yu, very smartly advised and suggested that I kind of expand and say, why don't you look at Asian Canadians, right? So that meant that I got to look at Chinese Canadian voices and Japanese Canadian or Japanese settler voices as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what that has taught me, so let me backtrack. The Sikh Heritage Museum visitors were all coming into a space that was built for them by them. Mm-hmm. Ditto for the Nikkei National Museum. It's a mm-hmm. museum for them by them. 
the counter kind of contrast was the Burnaby Village Museum, which is, as we all know, historically is a very white colonial museum. It still fosters a little bit of that kind of colonial storytelling, pioneer village setting, right? But all three communities were sick, Japanese and Chinese, because Burnaby Village Museum did their Across the Pacific exhibit for the first time, looking at Chinese Canadians. I wanted to compare how people viewed their sense of belonging in a museum that was for them, by them, at least storytelling that is through their own eyes, their community's own eyes, versus a museum that is still a white colonial museum, but it's storytelling by a community for the first time ever. Do you see right. what I mean? So does the it? setting change the, the responses? Mm -hmm. I think we all kind of know what the answers are going to be, right? But you got to back it up with research. <laughs> Do a dissertation. Spend eight years like I did. <laughs> so what I found was um, the narratives of belonging in this space, the Gurdwara and the Nikkei, were, um, you know, empowering. Words like pride were used again and again and again. And I kind of unpack how that word pride is used in the context of other things that my respondents are saying. In the Sikh Heritage Museum, there was a lot of words that were used to invoke, you know, um, uh, bhavna in Punjabi, which was a word used a lot, which means, it literally means affect. Like it literally means I feel, I feel something in my soul when I am in this space because I know that mother tongue, I was able to catch on to that. Right. And a colleague told me that literally means affect. And affect is more than just emotion. Affect is like this feeling of, you know, chills, mm. the chills you get when you're in a space, right? That was the language used here. The Nikkei National Museum, I was somewhat of an outsider, obviously, of the Japanese community, but also an insider in terms of understanding of exclusion based on race, mm. right? And so again, the, the language was, you know, still pride. People said things like, this is Canadian history. Mm. So again, not separating us as silos, embedding us in Canadian history. These are powerful responses of people claiming and owning and saying we belong. The Chinese Canadian respondents said we have more expectations. Mm. So the Across the Pacific exhibit, I think it's going to be an e-exhibit now, but it's a temporary exhibit. So I call it like a ghost. It disappears. Right. And as we all know, like racialized exhibits, ex exhibits based on various different forms of exclusion are often temporary ghosts. They come, Definitely. those relationships are fostered, and boom, they're gone. It's like a wisp of something that can be more. So, like, all, almost all the respondents said, this is great, but we expect more. And that's something I actually didn't, didn't foresee. I didn't expect, like, this kind of empowerment of saying, we want more. I think racialized communities are used to just kind of being grateful. We're in this constant space of gratitude. Be grateful for what you have. These respondents said, no, we want more. So I was really happy to see that. What it means is museums can no longer claim ignorance around this. Speak specifically about race. Rest this. Address how you're going to make your permanent fixtures in your museum spaces inclusive of the histories around you. Um, that's a bit longer than an elevator pitch. Let's just pretend like it's a really <laughs> long elevator up. So that's what my dissertation yeah. spoke about right. in a nutshell. No, you're so right. We deserve yeah. to be the permanent installations. To be Absolutely. Included, you know, and not just a, a tick box yeah. activity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the reason, you know, again, that brings into questions like who's on the board, 
who's funding the museum, who are the philanthropers if it's a heritage house. It puts all this into question because it challenges that foundational privilege to say you need to change. And you can't just have the one token indigenous person on your board. That's not going to cut it. Why can't you have an all indigenous board? Why does it have to be the one token? I see that a lot, right? It makes us question the positionality of race in museum spaces. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. Enjoy reading it. Yeah. <laughs> halfway through it yeah I oh, am yeah. enjoying it I Aww. think it's exactly what we've been waiting for right like yeah. I want to see more research like this and I mean I'm sure having Dr. Henry you as your supervisor it was just amazing too and you know yeah I can't say enough good things like, conversations oh. all the time <laughs> he's so awesome I just cannot say enough good things about him because what I've also noticed is academics are kind of tiptoeing into the field of public history and museums and I just want to be critical and say, I hope it's not as a performance to get into community. That really irks me yeah. because you haven't necessarily been a part of that community. And now are you going to extract just mm -hmm. for your own personal benefit or are you meaningfully? And Henry is somebody who has just constantly been a part of community. I mean like Punjabi community, like mm -hmm. his own communities, other, like he has been so a part of these conversations for decades, right? So I've learned so much from him because of that as well. So this honest question. Yes. <laughs> so this is this might be more for like emerging professionals listening, mm. but I know like even trying to build my own career in museum, yeah. it can be really tough to be openly critical because <laughs> you're always worried about like, will this come up in an interview later when yeah. I'm trying to be hired? You know, how will this affect my career? Like, do you have mm. any advice to IB professionals coming up into this sector? who want to call up museums for this kind of stuff or want to help create change yeah. and are just a little bit afraid to speak yeah. up. I'm going to be very honest in terms of my advice just on what I've experienced in the past two years in particular, two, three years. Don't lose your voice, mm -hmm. but don't do it until you're in a privileged position. And I'll be mm -hmm. very honest, no matter how much people claim equity, claim you know neutrality, if you are seen as being a rabble rouser, chances are that will influence your permanent hiring. So first get into a privileged mm. position, cushion in, right? Yeah. And then explode, <laughs> right? <laughs> like literally. Yeah. And I, I'm saying this with all sense mm -hmm. of like mentorship. And, and so if there is something burning that an emerging professional wants to tackle, find somebody who is a mentor, who is privileged themselves, who have the time and um, mental capacity, find them. And I've had people come to me, say, Sharn, this is what I've been facing. Find that person, they can help guide you and maybe be your amplification if you can't. A very practical advice, just wait, cushion in into a position and then challenge and question. Right. Because you need to get that privilege. We are so limited in our you know, um, we don't get paid enough. We don't get enough benefits for those of us who may have dependents. All these things matter to us. We have to be in that cushioned position to then say, okay, now I'm ready. That's good advice. Thank you. Yeah. It's still, it's hard to hear, but it's also so hard to navigate on your own too. And hopefully as we see more of each other in the sector, we'll yeah. be able to support each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, it'll become easier. And share stories in these yeah. spaces. We are so hesitant to just be honest. Like I will be honest and say academic spaces make me very uncomfortable. Like I, the way academics sometimes talk to each other, um, that is not how I function. Like mm -hmm. it's not a competition to see who's smarter. So I try to not be in those spaces and try to, try to speak out in different ways. And you gotta learn to find your niche, mm -hmm. something that draws you in, something that makes you comfortable. And then like I said, go full throttle in that.
Yeah. <laughs> Just want to keep clapping for a <laughs> Not thumbs, it's like yes. spoken word. There we yeah. Go. yeah. <laughs> okay, so you recently started your own independent consulting company. Can you tell me a bit about that? What kind yeah. of work you'll be doing there? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I have no website. Let's spread so, the words for so, the podcast. Yeah. yeah, so it's called Belonging Matters Consulting, and it's so funny. I don't often think things deeply, sometimes I'm just like, I'm just gonna do it. And I literally was one day sitting thinking, I'm just going to open up a consulting company off the side of my desk again. And the reason why I wanted to do that was because post Black Lives Matter resurgence, I saw all this EDI consultants everywhere. And not just in museum spaces, in university spaces, in athletic spaces, any space, municipal spaces, anything you could imagine, all these EDI consultants were emerging. And very few of them were racialized. Some were, some were not. And you know, as somebody who's driven by critical race theory and anti-racism, that really alarmed me um, because I felt the knowledge of critical race theory was not undergirding some of this work. Right. And it it's harmful, actually. And I mm. saw it myself when I was a part of these EDI consultations. And yeah. so I felt that there wasn't a lot... There are amazing consultants out there, but I felt the ones that I was dealing with and seeing just kind of in my face everywhere, mm -hmm. they lacked the kind of foundational knowledge of critical race theory and, and the lived experience. Lived experiences matter so much. How you talk to somebody from that place of lived experience of not belonging based on race really meant something to me. And so I felt a gap. And when I was close to finishing my PhD, I thought, let's just create this consulting company and see what happens. I put a few feelers out there and luckily the Burnaby Village Museum has been amazing. So they brought me on to do some work. Mm -hmm. The city of Burnaby has brought me on to do some storytelling work around interpretive signage of South Asians in Burnaby. I did my first workshop with the city of Abbotsford, so a municipal space around cultural competency. So that was exciting for me. I've never done like an actual three hour workshop, right? Mm -hmm. Facilitating dialogue. Um, what else am I doing? I, I do research and writing. So if you're wanting to do like an equity systems review or, you know, research about, you know, South Asian histories or in, interracial histories or racial histories in your communities, I can do that as well. So what I'm trying to do is be in cultural spaces, basically. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be in cultural spaces to foster a sense of training, belonging, but again, belonging based on race. My interest and knowledge is only that. Right. And I want to be really careful because EDI can be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of become that. I'm talking specifically about race because I'm interested in exclusions based on skin color, the darkness of the skill color, anti-blackness globally, how those relationships and stereotyping have been fostered for centuries. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that. So what does that mean when I come into your cultural space and you're lacking something? So again, I've got no website hoping to get that up soon. Right now it's Sharn, whether you hate her or love her, you can decide if you want to bring her in. Um, but I really appreciate that question, Jasmine, because I want to also have my own autonomy. And I haven't had that, right? So I want to have my own autonomy to say, this is what I'm going to do, take it or leave it. But I'll still do it with care. I'll still do it with compassion and love, but honesty, like just unfiltered honesty. So that's my hope with the right. consulting company. So for organizations or museums or whoever's approaching mm -hmm. you, like, are you saying like it will be an uncomfortable process potentially, but a meaningful, productive one as well? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And, and by uncomfortable, let me tell you why I think it'll be yeah. uncomfortable. The way I talk, as you probably heard in this podcast, and if you've listened to me, is not the way others speak. Like I'm just, 
I may throw some F-bombs in there. I may. I appreciate <laughs> that you're trying. Like, I've seen you on Twitter trying to change that in academia, too. Like, yeah. Like, you know, include swearing. Like, exactly. Yeah. And, and even that, swearing, again, mm-hmm. is a counterculture. It's a counter-narrative mm-hmm. to whiteness mm-hmm. and pillars of white supremacy. Right. And it's, censoring us, And right? censoring. And yeah. that's why, you know, the history of rap, R&B, and hip-hop is intrinsic to that, again. Mm-hmm. I always look to history for answers to everything. So the way I speak is like a language that's accessible. I'm self-deprecating. I make silly jokes. I show memes. I show gifs. Like do that even when I teach history courses. Do that because the people who are now in our spaces, any workspace has shifted. We've got intergenerational differences. We've got race differences. We've got lived experiences differences. We've got gender differences. I want to be able to make myself accessible. And I also want to be honest to who I am. I'm just going to come in as me. So when I say uncomfortable, some people find that uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. right? And if you do, it just means that I'm real. So that's where some of the discomfort comes in. People have an expectation of a consultant, an EDI consultant. I'm not an EDI consultant. I'm a consultant of belonging based on race. Mm -hmm. Very specific. And also I come with humility in saying that there's lots of things I don't know. That's why when I say that, I'm only doing that because that's what my knowledge is in. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. And I'm in awe of people who do that. It's just not my expertise. So how can I be everything to everyone? So it's humility too. That's very well said. No, thank you. (laughs) If people want to contact you, yeah. how how should they contact Gmail. you? Gmail. So okay. I'll give it to you as well, but sharmji.sandra at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, you can DM me as well. I usually check my DMs as well. Awesome. Yeah. So we're going to come around to your position as a historian at yeah. Canada now. Yeah. Could you share a little bit about what that looks like? It is so much fun. All I get to do is do like reading and writing about figures, places in Canadian history, I so far have looked at like stories that we don't know enough about, right? Mm-hmm. So my role specifically is to be a part of, if anybody has nominated a, a person, a place, or an event as being of national significance, that file is given to a bunch of us historians based on our right. expertise. Yeah. And then we do like secondary source research to say, is there enough research to facilitate this? What is that research? What is that person's life story? I know it sounds so mundane to some people, but I love it so much. Like it's, <laughs> I've learned so much in a matter of two months. The racialized experiences I have gotten to read about and learn fills every kind of cup, right? About a, it tells me that people's knowledge has expanded about what's missing. Mm-hmm. And B, it tells me that there is a process in place where all us historians are getting excited about it. I'm surrounded by all these historians. We share stories with each other about what we're learning, and it doesn't matter what it is. There's just this eagerness. You know, being in a field of people in the same discipline is really exciting stuff. It's really great to hear that Parks Canada is doing this work yeah. and hiring great people like you to Aww. critically evaluate our national history. Yeah, um, yeah. And make some changes. Absolutely. And, you yeah. know, again, it reminds us of the power of history, the power of storytelling, and the ways in which these stories are told. I don't think we read things like Heritage Minutes, um, you know, things that are in public discourse just normalized as being the only thing that is true mm-hmm. now all of a sudden these organizations are saying no no we need to bring knowledge holders and historians and people who will change that and add more to it mm-hmm. and again my relationships that i have 12 years sitting behind me i get to 
I get to utilize. I'm so lucky. It's actually mm -hmm. been a wonderful transition of the community work I've done, the exhibit work, the sassy, being so foundational to that and now this. I'm really privileged in the path that I've gotten to take. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like reciprocity plays a role in those relationships too? Do you have any examples you can share? I know that's a bit of a personal question. Well, mentorship. So for example, I posted about my graduation picture um, mm -hmm. when I grad my ceremony was last week and it got one of my biggest like tweets, like got like more than a thousand likes. And I got a bunch of messages from young six in particular mm -hmm. saying, Sharn, I'm, you know, in the medical program doing this. I'm looking at climate emergency as a sick from a sick lens. Can we chat? And that made me so happy. Yeah. That's my reciprocity. Um, you know, being the first and only sick to graduate with her PhD in the history department at UBC reminds me of the lack, the incredible lack, mm -hmm. um, and omission and now the catching up that needs to be done so my again seva mm -hmm. and my giving back is i want to mentor the heck out of all the <laughs> young people i can and when i say yeah. mentorship i mean i learn from them too jasmine yeah. like some of the young people i've got great friendships forever friendships have taught me so much you know they've taught me about my own worth as a as a millennial like an mm -hmm. older millennial again i've had gratitude ingrained in me just put your head down charm don't rock it Mm -hmm. oh don't do that like you should be grateful so I've gone that way being that way just grateful grateful I'm not gonna ask for too much and then I have friendships with these young people and they're like no you demand this you demand more you look for more mm -hmm. don't settle and it's been a whole spin of my head mm -hmm. being taught by young people so I'm so excited to talk to these amazing young people and not just six, anybody who wants advice. Do you have any more advice that you'd give to like young Ivy Pop professionals mm. coming up in this in this sector or just anyone who's emerging? They don't have to be young. Mm -hmm. and, like you mentioned that you were a first at UBC yes. in the history department. Yeah. And I imagine that can be isolating at times oh, too. Oh, so right? much. Like, shh, how do you keep going? Well, it's funny. So I began in 2014 and I remember my first year of coursework and um, it was myself and another friend. She and I were the only mothers in that mm -hmm. entire group and only racialized people. So just me and her and we clicked. We just saw each other and we're like, we got each other. <laughs> Everybody else, for the most part, I think, is like white sees head. I believe white sees head, right? Mm -hmm. um, now I go back because I've been invited to speak to like the current cohorts flip, total flip really? in that, oh. like, racialized and the things they are doing. And I made that comment. I said, wow, again, I have to look to hope. So that gives me hope. And I, the department's been doing a lot of internal conversations around accessibility to grad students who are mothers or full-time working or have other life circumstances. How can we help mm -hmm. navigate around that? Those conversations are all taking place that didn't take place eight years ago. Right. So if that's, that much has changed in eight years, what I would say to emerging professionals and young professionals is that you are a part of the surge of awareness taking place, but it doesn't always translate into accountability and things actually happening. So um, don't be afraid to speak to mentors who are racialized, speak to people. It has been racialized people around me my, my whole 10 years who have supported me, like Henry, Sathwinder, Renisa, being around them Vivian is not racialized, but she was as a mother on my committee and she provided so much empathy. She just got it. She's like, oh my God, you're a mom and you're doing this. You surround yourself with people who just empathize from a place of wanting to shift, mm -hmm. you'll do good. But you know, also I think emerging, like I said, young professionals have way more to offer 
to older generations. And they should be empowered to value that rather than disempowered mm. from a place of like social media awareness, tech savviness, but also like bare bones. Let's talk money. These emerging professionals are like, no, 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 this is what I'm owed. And again, I was like, what? Oh, I can't talk about money. That's so uncomfortable. I've been brought up that way. Yeah. And again, the young people are like, no, nope, not good enough for me. I'm going to ask for more. <laughs> Blew my mind. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> they come with that knowledge. So back to reciprocity, it is two ways. So reach out to those of us who have been in this heritage, museum, public history field. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. It's so great to have you. I always learn so much listening to you. Aww. And I'm very grateful to, I consider you a mentor as well. I'm grateful to know <laughs> <Sweet>. you. <laughs> I, I appreciate this so much, I have to say, because these sort of platforms, I'm telling you, are so valuable to mm -hmm. me and my emerging career as well which is still emerging i feel like we're always emerging it never really ends yeah. which makes it exciting so grateful to the bcma and to you i'm glad you and i got to chit chat yeah agree yeah thanks Sharon. yeah Bye. thank you for joining us today for this first episode of the bcma's ibpoc network podcast i hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed recording it with sharn you might have heard some background noise there at the end Grisit Gurdwara is a community space by nature, so a few people were entering the building as we wrapped up. It's always fun recording these things in a dynamic space like that one. If you'd like to reach out to Sharon about Belonging Matters Consulting or about anything else mentioned in the podcast, please email her at sharonjeet.sandra at gmail.com. Her email address is also included on the podcast page. Lastly, if you're new to the IBPOC network, welcome. The BCMA's IBPOC network was created to respond to the immediate needs identified by racially marginalized museum workers in this province. We currently offer many different ways to engage with the network, including our monthly free tea and talk sessions over Zoom, cultivating careers professional development workshops, and this podcast. We have two free sessions coming up in January and February of 2023 that are worth checking out on our IBPOC network homepage. We'll also be bringing in-person tea and talks around the province this coming year. If you would like us to come to you, please check out our homepage. We encourage anyone to reach out. No location is too far. Interested in being on the podcast? If you're a person of color working in the cultural field, please reach out to me, Jasmine, at communications at museum.bc.ca. We'd love to have you on and keep expanding our support network of IBPOC professionals across BC. Thanks for listening. Thank you.